Morning. <laughs> Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18, 6 through 16. When the men were returning home after David had killed the, killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. Um, excuse me. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success, because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he had led them in their campaigns. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Beth. Uh, Pray with me, if you would, as we open the scriptures. Lord, your word is a uh, lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So as we unfold your word this morning and as we look to it, would you use it to illumine the path before us? Help us to see the way we should go. Help us to see the way we should not go. Use your word to reveal to us the potholes and the obstacles in life. And instead, help us to see the way to life Give us the courage to walk according to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, there's not a great place to say this, but I just, I had this, realize, I was thinking, when do I say this during the service? I just realized that as we were singing, um, so I'll just say it now, uh, I'm so encouraged by how we sing. I don't know if you've noticed this. Uh, I notice it because I'm sitting in the front, so I hear everybody singing uh, we're still, you know, when I talk to other pastors and we say, how's COVID kind of affected your church? Um, I mean, we're, st- you know, one of the easiest metrics, it's not really a great metric, but the easiest metric is how many people are there on a Sunday. We don't have nearly as many people here as we did before COVID. Uh, for, I don't know why, we're singing louder now with fewer people than we did with almost twice as many people before COVID. I don't know what that, I don't know why, I don't know what that means, but that to me is a sign that the Spirit is just moving and present and alive and active. So um, thank, thank you for encouraging me. And um, I just, I dream that we would be a loud, joyful singing church. So thank you. Um, we're in Lent. This is, as Doran mentioned, the third Sunday uh, of Lent. We're considering the seven deadly sins during Lent. 
The seven deadly sins are not a category that the Bible lays out, as if to say there are seven sins that are deadly, and then all the rest are, you know, more benign. They're not, you know, they won't kill you. They'll just make you a little sick. Uh, That's not the case. In fact, Scripture is pretty clear. All sin is deadly. But by categorizing it this way, which uh, church fathers over many, many uh, hundreds and thousands of years have helped us to do, it helps us to think a little more systematically about sin. Now, why do we think about sin? Why is that important? That's kind of depressing. Uh, because if, you, if you're sick and you go to the doctor, you don't want the doctor to tell you, well, you know, everything's okay. No, if you're actually sick, you need to hear it. You need the doctor to say you're sick. And here's how we can treat your, your sickness. Dealing with sin is kind of the same. Like, it's a reality. And if we just hide from it, like if we were to hide from our sickness, our sickness would just get worse and worse. If we hide from sin, it gets worse and worse. But if we deal with it, then we allow the great physician to treat us and to heal us from our sin. The goal of talking about sin is not to make us feel guilty, but to help us to appreciate the grace and the freedom of Jesus Christ. So there are seven traditional deadly sins. This morning, we're going to think about envy, uh, this, this was probably the hardest week in terms of prepping and writing a sermon and thinking about what to say uh, because we don't think about envy, or at least I don't think about envy, and my hunch is most of you don't. My, um, part of the, the role as I, as I serve as a pastor, one of my roles is counseling and sitting with people and, and working through kind of sins and problems and how do we overcome those things. I've, I've never once had somebody come up to me and say, you know, Chris, we, uh, can we talk? I'm, just, I'm really struggling with envy. And it's really, it's just, I've had people come to me with all, can we talk about this, that, all sorts of things people want to talk about. All sorts of struggles, all sorts of sin, all sorts of, nobody has ever come to me and said, I, I, need, to, I need to deal with my envy. In fact, my, my guess is, if you're anything like me, you don't really think about envy. And, and if you think deeply about it, it may even come as a surprise to you that envy made the cut to be included on this list of seven deadly sins. Aren't the others much worse? Lust, wrath, greed, like those are, those are the real, those are real sins. But envy, like come on, come on. It doesn't really, and it doesn't really hurt anybody. I can manage it. That's if we're even self-aware enough enough to realize our our own envy. Maybe it's never even occurred that this is something that really each of us wrestles with. It's been hard for me to think through it because it's something I don't think about and I don't consider in my own life. And even this week, just starting to open that door, I've realized how much envy is in my life. I've also seen this week that the Bible, even though we don't think about it, the Bible takes it very seriously, and therefore so should we. Uh, Envy may be one of the most effective of the deadly sins for exactly that reason, because it goes unnoticed and it is so subtle. Satan loves to use the subtlest, most hidden sins to gently veer us off the path without even us realizing it. The danger of envy is exactly that it's not obvious. It slips in the back door. It doesn't call attention to itself. 
and we don't realize how pervasive it can be in our lives. Now, whether we're talking about envy or jealousy, like we pretty much, I don't have to do a lot of work to define it. You kind of get what envy is. But we're going to explore it a little more. It's, and let's just, just to say we did it, it's um, roughly synonymous with jealousy. But it's not just jealousy that you want stuff. The, the, probably the, the key marker of envy is not just that somebody else has something that you want, but specifically that then you begin to resent them because they have something. The stuff, the desire for the thing, creates a resentment towards a person. We're going to see that this morning as we look through the story of Saul. And in some ways, I hope we'll see that the story of Saul is not that different from the story of each of us. We looked at Saul just a couple weeks ago, actually, so we're returning to him. The one difference, and I'll give this away at the front end, is that um, in the Old Testament, Saul is a tragic figure. He never... (laughs) He never really gets redeemed. The hope is that we are not like Saul in that, that we, we see ourselves in him and that we see our tendency towards envy, but that we also recognize it and that we allow Christ to heal us. So look at Saul. If you have your um, Bible, by the way, you can keep it open. We're in 1 Samuel 18 or it's in your program. First, we have to ask, we have to, we're really going to ask three questions. What's the root of envy? So where does it come from? Secondly, what's the fruit of envy? How does it show itself? And then lastly, uh, how do we suffocate envy? And I'm really sorry. I've, I was really excited that I came up with root and fruit, and then I couldn't come up with a third root word that rhymes. But the root of envy, then the fruit of envy, and then how do we suffocate it? First, we've got to get, what are the root? Where does envy even come from to begin with? If you look at 1 Samuel 18, it's, it's right there. It's pretty much clear as day. So we're going to start right in verse 6 at the beginning. Just a little bit of context before we jump into it. Um, Saul is the king of Israel. We've got David. If you grew up in church, you remember King David, like David and Goliath. In fact, the story of David and Goliath occurs immediately before this. It's the, it's the story that comes right before what we're looking at today. And if you remember that story, David, David's a nobody. He's the youngest son of many sons. He's, a, he's a, a puny little shepherd boy. He's not strong. He's not tall. He's not particularly handsome. And Saul is particularly strong and handsome and powerful. In fact, he's the king of Israel. And yet you've got Goliath, this giant of the Philistine army, threatening to demolish Israel. And Saul, the great, powerful, handsome king, is hiding in his tent while David goes out and kills the giant. So already we've got quite a contrast between David and Saul. Saul already looks pretty bad in comparison. Look at verse 6. So when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. That's a good translation. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. In, in one sense, the, the root of envy is obvious. The people admire Saul more than they admire David. 
So typically after a military tour, you came home and there were parades. Not, sometimes it's still like that today. Uh, and, and it says that the women were coming out and singing and dancing. And they were praising Saul, but they were praising David more. Saul wants to look good. He wants to look good. And it's interesting to note, this may be just a peek into to some of Saul's driving or motivating factors that it's the women whose admiration he's looking for. I'm not sure exactly what to make of that, but you can probably read a little bit into that. At the very least, he feels like and thinks he deserves admiration more than he's getting, even though he was the one, remember, who hid in his tent while David went out and killed the giant. Saul thinks he deserves admiration of his people. Now, in one sense, it's true he's the king, and, and we believe that we ought to give appropriate uh, deference and respect to our rulers. But Saul thinks he deserves admiration, and instead, David is getting it. By the way, this is a helpful text to, to, to preach on envy from for a number of reasons, but one of them is that we often think envy is about stuff. We often think envy is about, I want the thing that you have. I want your, your income, I want your lifestyle to live in the neighborhood, but it can be much, much deeper than that. It's not just stuff. It can be hidden things. In Saul's mind, he has earned the admiration of his people, and David is a threat. Look at verse 8 again. What more can he get but the kingdom? He deserves it. That's in his mind. The only thing is, if you go back and read beginning of the beginning of 1 Samuel, Saul didn't earn the throne. He's the first king of Israel, but he, w- he was chosen surely as an act of grace. In fact, if you go and read in 1 Samuel 9, when Saul is chosen to be the first king of Israel, his response in, verse, uh, in chapter 9 uh, is actually very humble. He says, who am I? I'm from the least of the tribes of Israel. I'm from the smallest. We're nobodies. He begins with a very humble approach. And I don't know exactly what happened or what changed, but isn't it something that between chapters 9 and 18, we go from Saul, the humble who sees the grace in his being chosen to be the king, to Saul the proud. Saul the, I deserve this. What happens in us? that we go. Initially, things tend to start better, right? But as time goes by, we, st- we start more humble, we start, we start thinking we don't deserve it, but as time goes by and we start to see more success, and especially as cards start to fall in our favor, suddenly we start to think, I deserve fill in the blank. The roots of envy grow, we see in Saul, from the soil of entitlement. Saul feels entitled to something. That instead of seeing whatever that thing is in life as a gift, we see it as something we've earned. This can be any number of things. Again, it's not just material. We can envy somebody's res- the, the amount of respect somebody commands. I see how everybody respects, you know, so-and-so. I deserve that kind of risk. Why does nobody respect me like they respect them? Do they have any idea how hard I've worked? We could see somebody's place in society. This is related. 
Look at how everybody in the community looks up to and admires and defers to so-and-so. I deserve that. I've lived here longer. I know this place better. I've served here for more years. Maybe you see somebody's role or their job title. I deserve that, not them. In fact, they took credit for my work, the work that I did. I've been more loyal to this company, more loyal to this organization over the years. I deserve that, you see? Maybe it's not those kind of social standings. Maybe it's a lifestyle thing. We see this so clearly in social media right now that social media exposes this. You see somebody and you see their Facebook feed or their Instagram feed and what do you see? Their perfect lifestyle, their perfect vacation, their perfect children, their perfect outfit, their perfect avocado toast, their perfect whatever, whatever, whatever. And you think, why do they have such a perfect life and not me? I deserve that. There are actually at least two problems with that. The first is the smaller problem is that that's not actually their life. And I know you know this, but let me remind you that when you see somebody's perfect social media feed, you are seeing a carefully curated, carefully cultivated, very narrow slice of their life. Only that slice that they want you to see where they have stripped out every single blemish from the margins. You're not seeing their true life, but you think you are. But that's not actually the real problem. The real problem is that even if that were their life, we still feel like we deserve that. How come they get it and not me, you see? How come they have it and not me? The roots of envy thrive in the soil of entitlement. But we all know that a plant doesn't just have roots. You don't see the roots that's what gives it life. Then they grow into the, the plant itself and to the fruit. The fruit is the part of the plant that you see and you notice most obviously. What is the fruit of envy? What does it result in? At least two things, two poisons, two toxins. First, envy will poison your relationships. And secondly, envy will poison your own soul. In other words, it has external implications and internal implications. And because it's so subtle, it will, it will just wear away at those things until there's nothing left. First, you see, it poisons your relationships. You see, what happens is you don't just become envious of what the person has, you become envious of the person themselves. You start to resent them. We see this in Saul. He resents what David has, and what happens He tries to kill him. Twice in his court, David is there and he hurls a spear at him. The language says he he tried to pin him to the wall. That's pretty vivid. In our case, it's usually less dramatic. I hope it's usually less dramatic than that. But our envy of what they have and thinking we deserve what they have means that that we just slowly start to, to sabotage them. And I don't quite understand why this is. I've thought a lot about it, and I still can't really figure it out. My, my best guess is it's a sense that, if, well, if I can't have what they have, then I'm going to make sure they don't have it either. 
So we gossip about somebody. We talk about them behind their back. Subtly, very subtly. Sometimes as Christians, we frame it as a prayer request. We give them the silent treatment. Maybe we just quietly, subtly undermine something else they're working on. You see? And again, I don't, I don't know exactly why. Like, when you think about it, it doesn't make logical sense, but it's not a logical thing. C.S. Lewis wrote, um, wrote this about it. He says, if I'm a proud man, and he's, so he's kind of riffing on some of the seven deadly sins, and, and he's writing about how all the sins can trace their root to pride. So he says, if I'm a proud man, then as long as there is one man in the whole world more powerful or richer or more clever than I am, then he is my rival and my enemy. You see, it poisons our relationships. But it doesn't just poison our relationships interpersonally, it poisons our soul. It becomes this rot from the inside that works its way out. We see this in Saul again. Look at verse 9. It says, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. You know when you're always keeping an eye on someone? Why is that? Because you don't trust them, right? But what does that do to you? A couple verses later, verse 12, I think we actually get to an even more base motive. It says, Saul was afraid of David. There's fear there's jealousy. You see what's going on? This is eating away at the very core of who Saul is. It's eating away at his heart. You know how you get upset or worried about someone? And what happens? It consumes you. Like sometimes you actually lose your appetite or you can't sleep because of it. See, envy doesn't just destroy your relationship with a person. It, It destroys you. And, here, and here's the thing, even, even if you get what that person has, even if you get the thing that you think you want, it doesn't make anything better. Not at, a, not at a core level. If Saul had gotten the praise and the admiration of everybody in his kingdom, would it have made anything better? No. His heart would have still craved more his heart would have still been completely focused on himself. And in a sense, it's never enough. You always find yourself wanting more. Getting the thing that you think you want never fixes the problem. You got that person's approval. You're craving, I don't know, your boss's approval and trying to, right? And, And you get their approval. Now what? Now you have to keep it. And now you're imprisoned by this fear that even though you got their approval, you still might lose it. You're still, you got the thing you thought you wanted, and yet you're still trapped by it. You see? It can be material. You got that dream kitchen. I'm not knocking dream kitchens because we're renovating our own right now, so this is as much pointed to me as it is to anybody else. You got your dream kitchen. That's the thing you thought you wanted more than anything else. What happens the very first time you get a scuff on that cabinet door, right? You thought getting that thing was going to make everything better, but it's still an idol in your heart. 
And besides, once you get your dream kitchen, you might just want a dream bathroom. And then you might just want a dream deck. And it, you see, it, it never stops. Envy poisons us. It's toxic within our own soul. In short, because you realize after a while, you're asking somebody or something to do something that it was never meant to do in the first place. This is why, I think this is why Joseph Epstein said that of the seven deadly sins, envy is the only one that is no fun at all. <laughs> like at least the others feel fun for a minute. But envy is just this rot in us. So what do we do about it? How do we suffocate it? How do we suffocate it? It's helpful to remember at least two things. First, a biblical truth that you are, um, I'll quote 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. See, I I mentioned earlier that, that, that the roots of envy thrive the best in the soil of entitlement. Entitlement means I deserve this. Something, this thing rightfully belongs to me. Well, the antidote might be something like Psalm 24, which says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all those who live in it. That means everything in the world and every person in the, in the world, including you, doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. You see? Which means that your stuff is not your own. It's the Lord's. And their stuff is not their own, it's the Lord's. Your reputation is not your own, it's the Lord's. And their reputation that you long for is not their own, it's the Lord's. Your legacy is not your own, it's the Lord's. And their legacy that you're trying to live up to is not their own, it's the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it. The world and all those people who live in it. Every single person, every single thing. In fact, it goes one step further because we're not, not just talking about possessions or attributes. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You are not your own. In a postmodern world, when you, the world teaches you that you get to define your existence, you get to define your reason for being, you get to define your purpose in life. I heard once uh, this quote that sounds profound but is completely meaningless. The purpose of life is a life of purpose. Like, what does that mean? Nothing. It means nothing. It's completely vacuous. But in a postmodern world that says you get to define your purpose in life, Paul counters and says, no, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, he says. The first antidote is simply to remember, really, we're entitled to nothing because nothing belongs to you rightly. Everything rightly belongs to God. Everything, everything. Secondly, I would say, I I need a better way to say this, but this is the only way I could think of this week, is to find a better reference. A a, A reference is something that you measure other things against, right? So a yardstick is a reference. 
or, or a ruler is a reference. In other words, it tells you this is how much one inch is and this is how much two inches is. This is how much three inches. So when you go to measure that photo so you can go to the store and, and put it in a frame and you need to know, like, is this a four by six or a five by seven photo, the, the ruler is the reference. That tells you how big the photo actually is. You see? The problem with envy is that it causes us to look to the wrong reference. It causes us to have the wrong standards. We measure things in the completely wrong way. It's, it's almost like you're trying to measure time with a measuring cup. Like it was ne- never meant to do that in the first place. Here's how, um, let me read to you how C.S. Lewis puts it, and then we'll kind of play with putting it in our own words. C.S. Lewis, again, um, he's just so good on this. And again, this is the same section where he's comparing pride and envy and using them roughly interchangeably. He says, Envy gets no pleasure out of having something, but only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or more good-looking than others. And if someone else became equally rich or equally clever or equally good-looking, then there'd be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. It's the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. And once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. We measure ourselves by comparing ourselves to other people, and that's where envy starts to creep in. But for starters, it's completely self-defeating because there's always somebody, there's always somebody who has more money than you, and there's always somebody who's better looking than you, and there's always somebody who's more fit than you, and there's always somebody with a better reputation than you, And there's always somebody who's funnier than you. And there's always somebody who's more talented than you. Like, do you get the point? You're looking to something that cannot give you what you want. It can't. Furthermore, even if you were to make it all the way to the top of the heap, even if you were the most whatever person in the world of the seven and a half billion people, you were actually number one. It would never fill you up. Why? Because that person whose approval you just crave and you'll do anything to get that person's approval, like someday they might not be as impressed with you or, or they'll die. And then what? Your whole reason for living has just vanished. Or that thing that you want, that thing, you know it's going like, to rot or it's going to decay or it's going to rust because all of our cars are going to rust sooner or later or it's going to become outdated and out of fashion and, and that dream kitchen that you're building in 2022, you're going to have to update in 2032 because now it's, now it's dated. Like These things cannot fill us in the way that we want them to. Even, even family how many of us envy somebody else's family? If only my family, family were like their family. And I'm not knocking family. Families are so important. I'm not knocking families, but you know what happens, right? You know this from experience. 
parents get older and they lose their memory and they're not as sharp as they were. Siblings drift away and move across the country. Kids rebel and they wear weird clothes or they go off to college and they choose friends that you wouldn't have chosen. Like even, even something as good as family cannot fill that void. They can never fill you in the way that you want to be filled. So what do we do? We find a better reference. We find something that can. Someone who can. Christian. I'm talking to Christians here. Do you believe, do you believe that Jesus says to you right now, you are enough? Do you believe that? This isn't an intellectual extra. This is not a rhetorical question. I want you to answer this in your soul. Do you believe that Jesus says to you, you are enough? Because I am enough. If you have me, Jesus says, you, you have everything you need. You don't need anything else. I have already bought you. That verse, you're not your own, you were bought with a price. Just notice bought is past tense. You have been bought. You have all, you don't buy something unless you think it's worth buying, right? Jesus has already decided that you were worth purchasing with his life. Done. Past tense. You were bought with a price. You are enough, he says, because I am enough. So you don't have to keep comparing yourself to everything and everyone else because I've already said that you're enough. I've already covered you with my blood. I bought you complete forgiveness on the cross. And then I was raised from the dead and I bought you a new, like bursting at the seams, never-ending, joy-filled life. You don't have to build yourself a better life. I've already given you all the life that you can possibly manage. I've already given you far more than you realize. The cross, brothers and sisters, is the antidote to envy. That's why during Lent, when we look very, very explicitly at the cross, we consider Jesus' death on the cross and we will get to the resurrection. That's an Easter, I promise. We see that the cross, the cross is the answer to all of our sin because it was there in all of our sin. We try to overcome it. We try to figure it out. We try to get better and we just wear ourselves out. It's at the cross Jesus says, enough, I've already paid for it. I've already paid for it. You are enough. It's at the cross that Jesus says you are enough and it's at the cross that Jesus invites you to say back to him, Jesus, you are enough for me. Do you believe that Jesus alone is enough? I'm gonna close, um, and I just, so I wanna read Psalm 73. This is both kind of a closing statement and let's let this be our closing uh, prayer as well. So after we finish, we'll have a couple moments to reflect and then we'll finish by reading, uh, or by singing rather. But uh, let me close by reading Psalm 73 in its entirety. 
And as I do, if it helps you to focus by closing your eyes, you can do that. But let this be your prayer to God. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree, and they increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. If I'd said, I'll speak all this, I would have betrayed your children. And when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. I'll read that line again. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen.